Hello and welcome to the Trauma and Mental Health Reports podcast series. We aim to share stories and knowledge on topics related to trauma and mental health with the community. My name is Taylor Alves, and I'd like to welcome our guest for today's episode, Summer Krause, who is a licensed professional counselor and a certified alcohol and drug counselor. She completed the Trauma-Informed Care Graduate Certificate Program at Portland State University and is a certified clinical trauma professional. Summer's experience working with adolescents involved in the juvenile system, and today we'll be discussing the topic of trauma and addiction in adolescents. In this episode, we'll also be talking about her work with Seeking Safety, which is a toolkit she created to help other professionals. Let's get into today's conversation. Summer, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. It's great to have you on here today discussing this important topic that we have not yet covered on our podcast. When I came across your profile, I was amazed at all the work you've done. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about your work? Sure. My name is Summer Krause, and I'm based out of the Portland, Oregon area. And I came into this work after having been a chaplain within juvenile detention centers and was just really struck by the overwhelming amount of trauma among youth who are incarcerated, disproportionate to youth that I was working with in different settings. And really what I observed is that once they were in trouble with the law, the focus became largely on their criminal acting out, underlying trauma went largely unaddressed, which is what prompted me to go to graduate school in the first place was to try to help address this trauma related theme. Really interesting. And and that's such an interesting um, experience to have. Um, trauma is a lasting emotional response that often results from people um, living through a distressing event. Experiencing a traumatic event can harm a person's sense of safety, sense of self, and ability to regulate emotions and navigate relationships. As this definition is defined by Kim H., today we'll be discussing um, and searching for answers to the question, what is the relationship between trauma and addiction as it relates to adolescents? We'll look at the treatment options and barriers to receiving treatment, as well as discuss risks and protective factors, and as we've mentioned, Summer's work with Seeking Safety. So what made you want to focus on adolescence and trauma through your work specifically? Yeah, so really that was um, that chaplain work that I did is what inspired me. And then um, I was first introduced to the model you just mentioned, Seeking Safety, which is an evidence-based treatment for PTSD and substance abuse. I was introduced to it while I was working in a residential treatment program for adolescents who were in state custody, on probation or parole, had issues with mental health, substance abuse, uh, and criminal behavior. Someone knowing what had drawn me to the field said, have you heard about this model? It was originally developed for adults, but it's also being used successfully with adolescents as well. And um, I hadn't heard of it, but was eager to learn more, found out when the next training was would be, and headed out and heard Dr. Najowitz, who developed the model, give a presentation, started using it with um, the clients within that residential program. And I just found it to be very effective and um, and just got in deeper and deeper. So developing different techniques and strategies in terms of how to engage them and really seeing this as the missing piece where so much focus was on the substance abuse among the youth, so much was focused on the criminal acting out. And I just found that to be so um, intriguing, but also just the piece that really helped youth to heal and move forward was addressing 
the underlying trauma, which everything else made sense of in light of their lived experiences. And so all of that's what sort of brought me into the field. It's what introduced me to seeking safety and, um, yeah, and then went on to develop the the toolkit, which is a supplement to seeking safety. Interesting. It is interesting to note that um they didn't op- they often focused on the addiction side, not necessarily the trauma side. That's something I didn't know, and seems like yeah, that would be a missing piece to the puzzle. They should be addressing. Yes, and you know things have come a long way in the field, but certainly when we're working with adolescents where there's trauma and substance abuse, so often the trauma is an invisible wound. And so it gets unrecognized or it gets misdiagnosed or the behaviors are kind of in your face and the substance abuse is what their parents are concerned about and maybe what got them in trouble with the law. And so the substance abuse tends to be kind of, you know, hard to ignore, whereas the trauma is this piece that, you know, um, oftentimes just isn't addressed but we're we're making progress but we have a ways to go in the field interesting um and let's see i once read um that one in four children and adolescents experience at least one traumatic event before the age of 16 and more than 13 percent of 17 year olds which is a ratio of about one in eight have experienced PTSD in some at some point in their lives. I think for many of our viewers and the general population, they often maybe think of PTSD as um, in terms of combat veterans or something, somebody who has gone through like a terrorist attack or a natural disaster. They might not necessarily think of adolescence when it when it comes to PTSD, but surprisingly, a lot more people can be affected than the people I just mentioned. Um, and so what through your work, what are some of the reasons, common reasons that you have seen as to why adolescents may develop PTSD or trauma? And is this common? Yeah, right. So it's so many different things can result in PTSD. And you're right, the two that I most commonly hear in terms of what people think about when they hear PTSD is they think of war, and they think of rape. And yet, we see many different experiences that can Uh, be traumatic for people. And certainly what's traumatic for one person may not be traumatic for another. And also, even if two people are in the exact same event, one can go on to develop PTSD and the other person doesn't. So there's definitely a subjective piece to this. Um, But for young people, certainly child abuse, it's high on the list here. Statistically, among females, number one type of trauma for adolescents is some form of sexual abuse. Uh, sexual violence, and for males, other violent acts. That's certainly not to say that those are experiences are unique um, to gender, but just kind of statistically what's at the top of the list. But also when we're thinking about trauma, it's not just what has happened to the young person themselves, but also what they've witnessed, what they've learned about. Um, And so domestic violence, as an example, very often, there's very high rates of PTSD among kids who are exposed to domestic violence. There is something particularly horrific about watching the people that are responsible for your care be engaged in violence with one another. That's Community right. violence, historical trauma, you know, there's sort of just many different flavors of it. In addition to what you mentioned, natural disasters, uh, a car accident, uh, near-death experience, etc. 
That's really interesting to note. And actually something that I don't even know why hasn't crossed my mind before that witnessing trauma it could, could be traumatic. Um, and I think that's a really, really good point to make. Um, in regards to addiction, are adolescents more susceptible to addiction? Um, why? Yeah, that's a good question. So when talking about adolescents, I found that addiction is not a term that they oftentimes um, identify with. Like it very rarely resonates with young people, the idea of being addicted to a substance. They'll oftentimes balk at that idea. You know, I'm not dependent. I'm not addicted. And legitimately, they may not be. Um, what we see for young people is that they oftentimes don't meet criteria for a substance use disorder because they've not yet started experiencing consequences related to their use. Mm. And we also know that substance use disorders are called the disorders of adolescence, meaning that adults who have a substance use disorder, oftentimes their use started during adolescence. And so we can see in terms of risk, right, that, that most adolescents will try substances at some point in their life or during their youth, um, but most adolescents don't become addicted to them. And yet, if this is a young person who has a history of trauma, that increases their risk. If there's a family history of addiction, it increases their risk. And now if we add to that early substance use early in life, they're at a significantly higher risk of developing a substance use disorder at some point than, you know, others who may not have some of those risk factors. Of course, anyone can become addicted if you try hard enough. Um, but when we're looking at uh, young people, some are more vulnerable than others, but they'll oftentimes um, say, I'm not addicted. And that may be true, and yet they're very vulnerable for it becoming a problem I eventually. See. I've um, read that some people describe the complex relationship between substance use and trauma as bidirectional, meaning that trauma increases the risk of developing substance abuse, and substance abuse increases the likelihood that adolescents will experience trauma. What are your thoughts on this? Is the relationship between trauma and substance use bidirectional? And if so, why? Yeah, definitely. Um, for the reasons that you just said, having one makes the other more likely is the reality. Now, for people who have PTSD and a substance use disorder, two thirds of the time, it was the PTSD that came first, and then the substance abuse followed as a way of self-medication. So what we know about substances is that they help PTSD symptoms. You know, our clients are going to tell us that that's true. It helps me sleep. It helps me deal with the memories. It helps me feel better or to be able to tolerate being around other humans. And we also see that um, it makes it worse in the long run. And so it sort of, you know, helps initially, but um, ultimately makes it worse. For some, it's the reverse, though, where it's the substance use that came first or the substance abuse problems came first, which increases young people's vulnerability to trauma or further trauma um, when under the influence and also in the context of drug culture. And so for some people, the PTSD comes second. Some people, I'll tell you, I don't know what the direction is, and you have kind of a chicken and egg debate in terms of which came first, because they may have been so interconnected from the get-go, having substances given to them as a way of subduing them, 
growing up in a home where people use substances and also harm one another. Yeah, but they do often go hand in hand. That's very interesting to know. And um, I wanted to go back to what we talked previously about um, risk, risk and protective factors for yeah. adolescent substance abuse uh, or substance use. Um, what are they? Yeah. So in terms of risk with young people, I mean, part of it has to do with who's with this child before, during and after the trauma. And so thinking of, you know, one child who comes from a community that's very safe, their basic needs are met, um, they have access to parents and caregivers, and when a terrible thing happens to them, they speak up about it and they're reassured that was not your fault, help is sought, right? This is a different experience than for a young person who grows up in a community where there's a lot of violence, uh, where their basic needs may not be met, where they don't have uh, perceived access or actual access to safe adults that they can turn to. And when they speak up about what has happened, um, they are told they're lying, that they're making the family look bad. They should have never told anyone that. The response of parents or caregivers in the context of um, young people's lives matters in terms of the risk of going on to develop PTSD and also sort of what resources are offered to them. So we can think about substances as one way that young people try to cope with circumstances that overwhelm them. And so, you know, what other resources are around them in terms of how to deal with scary things, how to deal with big feelings that are safe and also modeled for them. That makes a lot of sense. So I guess, in other words, um, let's say you are experienced, you are, you have experienced some sort of trauma. It's not, we're not saying that you're gonna use substances. And this is like a definite path, you may have factors around you, like resources or um, parents who um, believe you and do the things you mentioned that could buffer and um, lead to a protective factor, if I'm hearing correctly. Yeah, that's right. And for youth who don't have parents, in the example you just gave, who are safe and believe them, we also know that just one caring adult in the life of a young person can make the world of difference. And so if it's not, you know, mom or dad, it might be grandma, it might be a coach, it might be a teacher, it might be a friend's parent, you know, but one caring adult we know makes a difference. That's really interesting. And talking about maybe now we can shift to reasons why people might not get that treatment that they need in adolescence. So what are the challenges to receiving treatment in your teens, do you think? Yeah, so there can be a lot of just challenges that come up. Again, when we're working with young people with trauma and substance abuse problems, oftentimes we're working with families. You know, we're working with traumatized parents and caregivers and families that may have substance abuse problems. And if what has been passed down through the generations is simply how to survive, right, which is often what people have learned is they're passing on from generation to generation how to survive, but not how to heal, not how to cope, not how to break some of these cycles. And so we use the template that we were raised with in terms of how these issues are addressed. You just say, you know, buck up, kiddo, and, you know, we've got tough uh, bootstraps and time heals all wounds, right? We just sort of pass on some of the very same messaging that may not have been helpful to them. And yet 
not knowing another way to help a young person with these kinds of struggles. And so, you know, how was the trauma, how was the addiction addressed in the lives of parents or caregivers? There's so much secrecy and shame, right? For the young person, but also for parents and caregivers feeling to blame, fearing that they will be viewed as a bad parent. Um, the, the shame is what keeps people hidden. Having access to the care, having insurance, having um, providers that are available without a massive wait list. And then if all those things line up, you have the resources, you have the access, you have parents and caregivers who are willing, of course, then the reality is many times adolescents are not willing. Mm -hmm. So um, when we're looking at substance abuse treatment, specifically publicly funded substance abuse treatment, the number one referral source by a long shot is juvenile justice which means that they're court ordered to, to the treatment. And we also see that young people are oftentimes unwilling to decrease or stop their substance use unless ordered by the court. So automatically we're met with a young person who has been dragged to our office and doesn't want to be there, right? Um, and if it wasn't the court, it's the school, it's foster care, it's grandma, somebody is saying that they have to meet with you. And so there's a lot of barriers that get in the way. Once you have a customer, so to speak, is then how to engage them in the work is a whole other challenge. Some people, they may have received some form of help, but it's been incomplete. And so if there's addiction at play, right, oftentimes when I um, see adults with PTSD and a substance use disorder, it is not their first rodeo when it comes to addiction treatment the very same symptoms that we see among traumatized youth are oftentimes the behaviors we see um, in terms of youth who are in trouble often and have a lot of labels attached to them. So sometimes that trauma never got addressed, but addressing the two together is the important piece that we're not just treating the trauma or just treating the um, substance abuse is that we can treat the intersection because they are often so interrelated. You can't talk about one without talking about the other. And yet they may not have the same level of awareness of how trauma shows up and impacts their lives. That makes sense. Uh, branching off of that, we talked about the importance of receiving adolescence in your, in your sorry, receiving treatment in your adolescence. Um, but yeah. what can treatment look like? Sure. So lots of good options that are out there. Um, so uh, I'll speak kind of in broad terms first. So there are lots of good models for treating trauma and PTSD, EMDR, exposure therapy, uh, trauma-focused CDT. There's lots of good models that are out there. Um, there are also lots of good models that are out there for treating substance use disorders, motivational interviewing, 12-step programs. There's lots of good models for addressing substance abuse as well. Um, what we wanna do for folks who have both, and of course having one of these issues has the other, is we wanna be able to address them in an integrated way. So seeking safety, um, which is one of the models that I use and the one that I have the most experience with, and this is the one that I train people on, is 
uh, is really focused on the intersection. So it's the only model that has outperformed the control group in regard to both PTSD and a substance use disorder. So when we're looking at um, trauma, broadly speaking, there are past focus models, which are about going back, telling the story of what happened, you know, really um, desensitization. <clears throat> Those past focus models are very effective. There's really good evidence-based models that are out there and oftentimes are addressed to work around trauma, but in the studies that have been done, many times substance abuse is an exclusion. So if there are also substance abuse problems, they weren't represented in the studies that have been done on them because it increases the risk that as young people dive into the worst moments of their lives, that they'll leave and uh, just say, I need to get high immediately and that their substance abuse spirals out of control. Other broad category in terms of treatment for PTSD are present focus models. And this is what seeking safety is, where we're looking not at a method of going back and telling the story of what happened, but more um, how does it leak into your lives now and finding safe ways to cope in the present. Interesting. And um, that leads me to my next topic, which is perfect, because um, before we end our podcast, I wanted to talk a little bit about more of your work um, in regards to seeking safety and the SS Adolescence Toolkit. So could you explain more about, you kind of talked about seeking safety, but can you explain more about what these are and tell me more about your work? Sure, absolutely. So I am still actively seeing clients out of Portland, and I do run groups for adults and adolescents using Seeking Safety, um, use it as part of my individual therapy sessions as well. But most of what I do is training people, different professional helpers, in how to conduct Seeking Safety, which is this present focus model, treating both trauma and substance abuse together. And um, I have been using that for many years. I've been training people on it for many years. And essentially what I did is I created this supplement to the Seeking Safety model, which is used with both adolescents and adults. And it's a supplement designed specifically for adolescent providers in terms of how to incorporate games and art and activities into the session. So once they get through the door, it's probably not their idea how do we engage them? And many times we have to liven up our sessions because they do have a higher need to be entertained. So um, within the Seeking Safety Adolescent Toolkit, there are lots of ideas in terms of how to do that, as well as simplified brief handouts, um, coloring sheets with alternative quotations that sort of capture the topics that are represented within Seeking Safety, supplemental materials, resources for both youth as well as parents and caregivers. And that just came out earlier this year in March. It's optional. You can use Seeking Safety with or without the toolkit. But basically, I created the toolkit I would have wanted when I started using Seeking Safety with adolescents. So it's just been a hugely meaningful project uh, to be a part of and, and so glad that it's finally done. It took me a mere 15 years to finish <laughs> that project. And it looks really, really interesting. So I'm I'm so happy to have you on. And I just wanted to 
follow up with uh, just a few more questions before we finish. I wanted yeah. to go back to um, what you said, what you touched on previous. You said, um, I saw your Seeking Safety group um, is a present focused group that does not involve, quote, telling the story of what happened. Why do you, you kind of touched on it, but why do you think that, that this is so important? Oh, sure. Yeah, that present focused piece. Well, one of them, so going back to when I was working in that residential program for adolescents, we were predominantly male adolescents. So my group, Introducing Seeking Safety, it is a very tough sell. Most of our youth, very street savvy, most of them gang involved youth. Um, their worst nightmare would be to come into a group with other adolescent males and have to talk about the most vulnerable moments of their lives, right? And so the idea that it was a trauma group was totally terrifying to them. Um, and so I had to kind of meet with them individually, give them an orientation and to assure them that I was not going to ask them to tell about the worst moments of their lives in front of their peers. And in fact, I'd say, one of the rules is that you don't do that. I would stop you if you try, right? Because we say headlines, not details in this model. And part of that is for kids who don't have safe ways of coping in place yet for dealing with the feelings and memories that this can bring up is that it can increase the unsafe behaviors, whether that is um, substances or self-harm or thoughts of suicide or aggression, right? All the different ways that young people try to cope with things that overwhelm them is what we want to do first um, is to really be able to equip them in the present with the coping skills for how to manage these symptoms and also make sense out of what has happened to them. That makes a, a lot of sense. And it, it reminded me of something I learned when I looked, uh, researched EMDR therapy, where it's yeah. Because I think that's a lot, or from my understanding, it's a big deterrent to trauma therapy is sometimes you have to delve completely into it, share your whole story with a whole new person. And I know I, from my understanding, that's one big deterrent. So I thought that that was interesting that Seeking yeah. Safety kind of took that as well. Sure. Yeah. I do EMDR as well. And, you know, for some of my clients, it becomes, for those who are familiar with EMDR, there's sort of this resourcing phase in preparation for EMDR and seeking safety works really nicely there where if we can sort of first establish some basic safety and equip them with coping skills and how to make sense out of things, if that is going to be a part of their journey, which is a really effective approach and it's not right for everyone, um, is if we're going to do that, it's much safer when we make sure that sort of some of that stabilization um, is in place first. Interesting. And finally, um, I saw you also follow the idea that um, the client is first and, oh, sorry, you are first and foremost a professional listener and that you use a trauma-informed lens for understanding, quote, what happened to the client rather than, quote, what is wrong with you? And mm -hmm. um, why do you think this is so important in treatment? Yeah, right. Everybody's experience really is, different. And so, you know, as much as I work with people around trauma and addiction, everybody, there's some like common threads, right, that I hear themes. And this could be one of the powerful things about groups. My groups are very diverse. And yet there's oftentimes um, this common thread, everyone has suffered, people have been hurt in ways that they can identify with, even if their story is so different than someone else's. 
but the ability to listen, to not assume what was it like for you, which may be different than someone else, is important. And within Seeking Safety, we say aim to listen 80% of the session. And so um, being a professional listener, just bearing witness to what some of my clients have been through, that in and of itself, I find it a tremendous honor to uh, be trusted with hearing the stories that have never been told. And what was the second piece? Oh, using a trauma-informed lens, right? So many of my clients have uh, very harsh views of themselves. Their families, sadly, many times have harsh views of them. They've received a lot of harsh messaging from society about the things that they have been through. And so my goal is to empower people and other professional helpers to help people to say, ah, oh, my struggles, they make sense in light of what I've been through, that we don't just look at the struggle, but we look at them in the context of people's lives. Um, and then that piece around, and I can heal, and I can learn new ways to cope with it. Super interesting. And before we close, um, I just wanted to know if you had any final thoughts before we wrap up. Sure, I find this work to be just tremendously meaningful. And when I am talking with the community or different helpers, you know, many people say, hey, this isn't just something that I'm interested in helping other people with, but it's also something I've experienced myself. And so many of us are wounded healers. And so what I would say is, you know, if you're listening to this and, and maybe you're in the mental health field or maybe you're working with people around trauma, is the skills that make up seeking safety, the skills that we teach our clients, it's just the importance of being able to use those same principles and skills in our own lives as well, because we are the tool, right? We are the tool that we are using. So we have to take good care of ourselves um, to be able to do this work and to stay healthy and have it not sink us. There's certainly risks of things like secondary trauma, in the work where we can develop PTSD symptoms ourselves as a result of having so much secondhand exposure to trauma. But we also have this incredible opportunity um, to be exposed to stories of resiliency and hope and recovery as well. And those are the things that keep me going, knowing that recovery is possible. I, th I think that's beautifully said. And I wanted to thank you so much for joining us today, Summer, and sharing more about your, this topic and your work. Hopefully this sheds some light on the topic. And I think it's wonderful to hear um, your insight. Check out Summer's website, seekingsafety.org to learn more about her work. Thank you, everyone. You have reached the end of this episode of the Trauma and Mental Health Report podcast. Thank you for joining us. Connect with us at trauma.blog.yorku.ca. You can also find us on Facebook, X, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and the newsletter to see our latest content. See you in the next episode.